Hello, everyone, and welcome to Blogging Theology. Today, I am delighted to talk to Dr. Leila Etelhaj. Uh, salam alaikum. You're most welcome. Alaikum salam. Thanks for having me on. It's good to have you on. Um, Dr. Leila is director of Prevent Watch, uh, which is an organization supporting those affected by the UK government's Prevent program. And if we could just jump straight into this, could you explain to us what the UK government's Prevent program is and how it impacts Muslims? Um, before we turn to your work as director of Prevent Watch, if that's all right. Yeah, sure. So Prevent is one arm of the UK's counterterrorism strategy. So the UK has a counterterrorism strategy like most countries in the world would have. And um, it consists of four parts, protect, pursue, prepare and prevent. And prevent is quite unique from the other arms in that it deals very much within the pre-crime space. Um, so when people usually think of pre-crime, they think before a crime. Yeah. But actually what we mean by pre-crime is in this instance, there's no intent, there's no preparation, there's no planning. And in fact, when people get referred to prevent, um, the prevent officers themselves who come to, to interrogate them essentially tell them that they are not under any suspicion. So there's no intention in the person's mind that they're ever going to commit an act of terror. Mm. Um, and so that's what we mean by pre-crime. The person themselves doesn't even know um, whether or not they may in the future go on to commit some kind of crime, let mm. alone a terrorist act. Um, and yet prevent assumes that based on certain risk factors that you can ultimately predict who may go on to be vulnerable to radicalization, and through that theory from radicalization, move into extremism and terrorism. So you say predict, so that sounds quite quite a scientifically precise uh, thing. There's a detailed methodology, a way of measuring this um, success. I mean, is there a lot of scientific evidence to uh, kind of a methodology there that we can look at the stats or, 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 or what do you think? So prevent is based, the foundation of prevent is based on something called uh, risk guidance factors. Mm. And the main set of risk guidance factors that are used to develop this training and the idea of risk is called the ERG uh, 22 plus, which is the extremism radicalization uh, risk guidance factors. And there are 22 factors. And these factors ultimately are not like a predictive policing. Uh, Pre-crime and predictive policing are, are quite different. So predictive policing, for example, is where you say, OK, this particular area, there's a high level of knife crime. Um, and so we're going to put more police officers in that particular area to police yeah. it. That yeah. would be like predictive policing kind of lines. Pre-crime is very different. So it's based on this ERG 22 plus. This study was actually conducted on a small cohort of just over 20 um, offenders they were all Muslim offenders. They were all up for probation and they had been convicted for extremist offences. So they weren't even necessarily like violent terrorist offences. They were non-violent offences. And when they were coming up for probation, this study was conducted to try and determine whether or not they would be at risk of reoffending. And these risk factors, the 22 factors, you might think are quite scientific, but anybody who has a teenager or even if they're not a teenager as an adult, may show some of these um, risks. So I'll give you some examples. So the meaning, uh, wanting meaning and belonging in your life, going through a transitional period, okay? Um, even elements whereby people have mental health issues, such as autism, that is seen as you are vulnerable to being um, drawn into radicalization and therefore drawn into terrorism. So these mm. are pretty normal things, especially for young people, but also for older people. If you're grieving, if you've just lost, lost somebody, uh, if you've changed religion, then that would be seen as a risk factor because you're going through a transitional phase, you want meaning and belonging, um, and therefore anybody could refer you to prevent, but the prevent duty is a legal duty for public sector workers. So doctors, teachers, and anyone else working within these types of professions have a legal duty to refer people that they think might be at risk and they all get trained up. However, your neighbour could refer you to Prevent equally. Oh, really? Your neighbour? So uh, I, I thought it was just um, Prevent was to do with public sector people like doctors and teachers and nurses and so on. But you're saying a, a, a neighbour is obviously not a state actor can actually refer you to. 
Yeah, so the legal duty came in in 2015. So prevent was around from 2003, but it came in as a legal duty to these public sector workers from 2015 onwards. But since then, it's been rolled out to even private sector workers. So even though they don't have a legal duty, um, there are a number of, um, you know, M&S, McDonald's, these people will train train their staff. Yeah, on, yeah so when you're out at the counter, you know, <laughs> paying for your McFlurry, <laughs> you, you could be essentially being weighed up by the person who's just received their training. I was going to make a tasteless joke about Big Macs then, but I, I'm not going to go down that path because it's recorded. But um, yeah. look, I, I'm going to look, I, I'm going to shift this to a slightly different way because, uh, and this is going to be seriously controversial for some people. Recently, it hit TikTok big time. We, 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 um, Osama bin Laden of all people, Osama bin Laden's letter to America uh, became big or it has become big news on TikTok and other places. And people are, are reading this, it's been circulated endlessly. The Guardian, uh, the link to the Guardian website, which had this article, um, people were accessing that. And then, it, of course, it was mysteriously taken down by the Guardian, who decided, hey, even though it'd been there for like 20 years, they suddenly took it down again. And I, I reread it, I'd read it a long time ago, and I reread this. And what was interesting, assuming it's authentic, I think the experts tend to think of some bit alarm. Of course, he was responsible, allegedly, for the 9-11 attacks on the United States back in 2001. A lot of people sadly died. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. And uh, he says in this, uh, if one reads it carefully, he gives lots of reasons for why he and many people, many Muslims, obviously, and others, are very, very, very angry and upset with the way he perceives America and the West to behaving. So, you know, that they they fund uh, um, uh, countries that oppress Muslims, that ethnically cleanse Muslims, um, that torture them, that lock them up, that persecute them all over the place. And America being the hegemonic power, the superpower that's funding most of this, he's, he, he seems to think, is therefore a legitimate target. Now, given that social media, we can see a lot of this ethnic cleansing going on in the occupied territories and so on. People are putting two and two together, maybe not getting the right answer, but they're saying Islam bin Laden had a point, they think. Yeah, there are. I mean, but this is radicalization, surely, because, hey, Islam bin Laden, the great evil terrorist, had a point and he was right. They would argue, some would argue. Um, but it's difficult, is it not, to, to, to argue against what he's saying in some respects, because he does categorize he does list numerous atrocities committed he thinks by the west against muslims and so getting angry at these atrocities is actually quite normal i mean you wouldn't say oh that's just radicalization i mustn't feel bad about that i mustn't get angry and upset that's not normal response is it i'm not by the way the issue of targeting civilians is something else and of course is is actually prohibited in sharia and what how he gets around that clear islamic prohibition on targeting civilians is another subject which he does actually deal with, but I, I just want to deal with this thing. H how can prevent? How can prevent take be taken seriously when people on social media actually see Muslims being targeted and killed, children, you know, tens of thousands of women and children being slaughtered? I mean, you know, I see it on my Twitter feed. It's horrible, disgusting, appallingly horrible. How can people not be radicalized? You, you know what I mean? How can we not be affected by that and get angry, and thus? fall foul of these prevent kind of criteria. Do you see what I mean? It seems to be a very un unreasonable position to find ourselves pushed in uh, from that point yes. of view. There's a few points on this. Um, firstly, of course, with what is happening currently in Palestine, what people are seeing, what people are hearing and experiencing themselves via family members who, who they may have abroad um, is deeply upsetting. And instead of being given a space to speak about it, and I speak particularly about the education sector, because we're talking about schools and colleges and universities, yeah. who have ultimately shut down any conversations around Palestine. Now, the majority, I must admit, there are some schools where people have reported that actually, you know, children are allowed to speak about it. The majority of calls that we're getting and that other organizations are getting, casework organizations are getting, is that 
um, parents have a serious issue because their children are coming back really upset, saying they're not allowed to have an opinion on the matter. Right. Uh, you know, then they're not even speaking. It's like the elephant in the room. It was described in that sense yesterday by a, a client who called and said it's the elephant in the room. They're not even acknowledging that it exists. They're not even acknowledging what's happening. Uh, children who are going to participate in protests during school time, you know, there's a huge discrepancy as to whether the school classes it as an authorised absence or unauthorised absence. Those schools who are classing it as an unauthorised absence are probably also teaching about climate change and, uh, you know, radical people like Greta, who also missed school to make her point. You know, so it's, it's a huge conflict. And I think like you said, people are being angry, but I think it's how they express that anger, how they express their emotions. And by shutting down these spaces and saying you cannot speak about what is happening in Palestine because it's political, it's not a humanitarian issue, actually. It's a very political issue. Well, it's the schools and, and governments that are making it a political issue. If you look at it in black and white, how many of our children are looking at it, there are children their age and younger than them who are being killed and nobody's doing anything. And so, of course, they're going to get upset. And of course, this is very radicalizing. And even if you look at what, you know, is shown daily without Palestine in mind, you know, on BBC or any other outlet, many of these things are, in a sense, as they were termed radicalizing because they do make you feel a certain way. But for Muslims, this is always termed using this phrase of a perceived grievance. Like, oh, you have a perceived grievance. That, uh, right. is, that is that the language that's used? A perceived grievance? But that's that's so insulting, isn't it? So, say 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 you or, or you know a, a woman, a sister known to us, came to us and said, "I've been raped." Okay, and you say, "Oh well," and you listen to them. You say, "Well, uh, but perhaps you ought to, you know, report your perceived rape yeah. to the authorities because you, your claimed rape." And right at the beginning, you're, you're not actually believing them. You're, you're you're saying, "Well, that's what you claim." I mean, how insulting is that? I mean, there is a that is where your your experience is perceived and needs to be backed up with evidence. And you saw this even exemplified where people were talking about um, the videos being shown in Palestine. You know, it's like people holding their dead children up to the cameras to justify and to to show, look, our children are dying. Meanwhile, you have headlines running, misleading about you know forty beheaded children. And there's no evidence required for that to be running in the media. And even though they said, OK, we didn't check that source, the damage has already been done. People are still yeah. using that as quotes. Really? I didn't realise that. So uh, it, so radicalisation then, some people would surely argue the radicalisation is a good thing in that it's a natural, healthy human response to atrocities that have been committed. So you're getting angry about it. But you seem to be implying that the prevent programme in are often suppressing or discouraging at best discussion, healthy discussion in classrooms and uh, places is actually making it worse because then if you're not allowed to talk about it uh, because it's somehow disapproved, you're, you're, that's, it's going to compound the upset and the anger and, and, and make you even more radical, if I can use that word, which is exactly the opposite of what the Prevent Programme is supposed to be aiming to. Isn't there a, isn't there a contradiction or a paradox there? There is, and this was highlighted by a UN rapporteur at least five years ago, where he said, you know, the prevent the prevent duty in terms of how it's working in the UK right now is such that by stigmatizing and alienizing communities, you could be doing the exact same thing you're seeking to stop, which is radicalizing people. And we use the word radicalization, it has a very loaded, uh, <laughs> you know, it's a loaded term, and we use it negatively. But if you think about radicalization, there was never ever any change without people who took radical action. I don't mean radical action in terms of violence. I mean, radical, radical change. I mean, we talk about radical change yeah, all the time. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. radicalization is something that's a dirty word now. You know, politicization is a dirty word now, only in certain contexts. When you think about Ukraine, what's happened in Ukraine and Russia, it wasn't even a year ago where schools were holding fundraisers and having assemblies. Um, I'm sure there are many more Muslims in these schools than there were Ukrainians or Russians in those schools. And yet somehow it was a huge topic because it was impacting all the children and they needed a safe space in which to speak. And you see now schools are sitting out saying we're apolitical and therefore we cannot discuss this topic. We don't want to get involved. They just about do a fundraiser. And they I don't think they even appreciate the impact that it has on Muslims as a whole, as an ummah. Like it might be, maybe that child isn't Palestinian. And we have had some Palestinian 
children actually referred as well, even before what happened recently uh, after October 7th. But, you know, they don't take into consideration their specific context, but they also don't take into consideration that as an ummah, you, you're, you are one body. Like if yeah. one part hurts, then the rest of you stays up in fever. You know, that concept as Muslims is a very powerful concept. And so whether yeah. you're Muslim or non-Muslim and you're you're really feeling hurt about what's happening right now, you know, having prevent or even even without having the prevent referrals, just having a prevent environment where people are looked at as suspicious, but really only if they're Muslim or saying things that go against what government currently determines as extremists, because it certainly was an extremist when people were packing up and going over to Ukraine from the UK. And I think you may have seen recently, you know, people showing um, uh, UK British citizens going over uh, to Israel to fight. Yeah, um, I mean, it, it really struck me. I saw some um, uh, Israeli slash British, um, there's one guy called a teenager, he's actually a 19 year old guy, you know, who was um, who was killed. I think he, he was fighting for the IDF, fighting the Palestinians, obviously. And um, how did the BBC or the Times put it? Yeah, he was killed while serving the, in the IDF. The word, I, I was really struck in the headline by the word serving. So he, he was serving in a, in a very noble capacity. But, he's gonna, but yeah, I was just struck by the use of language there. Yeah, in, in you know when people went over to Syria and other places, these were foreign fighters. Um, you had to look at what you would do when they came back in order yeah. to reintegrate them, if you even allowed them back, if you didn't strip them of their citizenship. Well, um, mm. And yet there's a completely different... So it really depends. I mean, the word extremist is essentially what we're looking at when we're looking at prevent. We're not looking at terrorist activity at all because of where it sits. We're looking at what is considered extremist. And what is considered extremist depends on government of the day and what line they want to follow. If Ukraine is good and Palestine is bad, then going against those status quos, well, you're an extremist. If it's to do with Black Lives Matter or climate change, you're an extremist. So I'm going to put push back here on this because I think some people might say, in fact, they definitely would, that there has um, long been a potential terrorist threat from extremist Muslims. And so we need a program to prevent radicalization and extremism that can lead to attacks like the 7th of July 2005 London bombings. So terrorism has actually happened in the UK, and uh, obviously, and, and there is presumably a potential threat uh, continuing, we're told. So how would you respond to that? It's not like there is, it's a complete fiction that there's no terrorist threat. There obviously has been and is. Um, do you see what I mean? So the program surely would have some legitimacy to that extent, or are you saying the whole thing is completely uh, without? So there's, a few, there's a few layers to that. Firstly, it's the um, attention specifically to Muslims. There's always been terrorism in the UK. Uh, we go out and we celebrate um, November fireworks. Right, um, that was an act of terrorism at the time. Catholic, Catholic terrorism, to be specific. Tried to, yeah, tried to blow up oh. the Parliament. So, yeah. oh, you know... Yeah. That was an act of terrorism, and there have been many more current acts of terrorism that have not been committed by Muslims. And so I think, firstly, to think that this is specific to Muslims, yes, prevent is specific to Muslims. It was actually created to prevent Muslim extremism. And even the guidance documents and the government documents, hmm. specifically in 2007, were saying preventing Muslim violent extremism. Like, it was explicit. It was only till 2011 that they expanded this to say, well, actually, we'll look at all forms of extremism and start right. talking about right and mixed mixed yeah. ideologies and yeah. insight, etc. Um, yeah. But it's come back full circle again now to Muslims and with the recent recommendations by William Shawcross, he's saying right. read on Islamist, Islamist extremists, right? The well, definition expanded, hasn't it? They broadened the definition uh, and, uh, and, and that the the, the folks on the far right they think has been too broad we must narrow it to uh, yeah. a, a more narrow definition i'm not quite sure of the substance of those points but the the, the focus on Mus muslims is broadening in terms of the uh the definitions of extremism and radicalization what might be included in that definition yeah meanwhile far right is is coming stricter why he actually yeah. explains why he says because because you may catch uh, mainstream political views. It's ironic, isn't it? Yeah. It enforces my point about government of the day and the state's quo and who just defines what extremist is, because mm. far-right views are very much mainstream politician views now, or what we consider mainstream, have moved into the mainstream. And so 
you know, it, by applying prevent to far right, you will guess what? We would have had many of our politicians referred to prevent. So he has to narrow that down. Furthermore, has to expand prevent in terms of Islamist and what Islamist means. And he gives a definition for Islamist, which is, you know, anyone who puts Islam at the core of their identity. Well, there goes all the Muslims. Well, that's 2.1 billion Muslims on the planet. Yeah, yeah. In the entire world who put their faith at the core of their identity. Yeah. Um, but So I think it's wrong for that reason in terms of how it focuses and how it it blatantly puts Muslims at, in the middle of being the suspect community. But it's also wrong on another level, because if you had prevent that worked in terms of doing what it says on the tin, which is to stop acts of terrorism or to stop people from being drawn into terrorism, okay, then you could say, well, we have this thing, it's not great. It does end up being discriminatory, but we'll live with it because the threat of terrorism is greater than some hurt feelings, you know, by being discriminated against. Ultimately, you could be really you know, cutthroat and say, yes, I'm. we're still going to go forward with prevent. But there's no evidence prevent works to stop people from being drawn into terrorism. And in fact, if you look at many of the terror acts that have occurred in the last few years, or at least in 2017, 2018, etc., these people were known to prevent. Mm -hmm. So we had several people known to prevent who then ended up going on to commit acts of terrorism. They weren't caught up by prevent. They weren't stopped by prevent. That's a solid example. And then you have people who are eight years old, four years old, being referred to prevent. Now, I can't understand how you can refer a four-year-old to prevent because you genuinely believe as an adult that you are making a referral to say that you think that this child is vulnerable to being drawn into terrorism. What you're really saying is this child is slightly problematic because of their parents' views, right? And what we tend to see in our cases is that, you know, with parents who are quite conservatively Muslim, those are the ones who end up getting their youngsters referred to Prevent because it's more a suspicion on the Muslim community. And if you think about how Prevent works, you're using these risk guidance factors, which are utterly useless, okay, because they apply to everyone. Mm. Um, but what you really are using is your bias, right? Because every teacher, every doctor, every optician, Every security guard is using their bias and their bias is going to be informed by the media, which is extremely toxic toward Muslims at the moment mm. and everything else. And if you look at just the education sector alone, right, 85% of, uh, of the teaching force right, is white English, right? white, white, white English workforce, 85%. And so whether it's conscious or unconscious bias that is kicking in, when these referrals are being made, it's not surprising to know that the education sector comprises a third of all prevent referrals. So of the six to 7,000 prevent referrals made every year, and we think that's a conservative number, by the way, um, these are the ones recorded by the Home Office. A third of those come from education sector. That is more than any other sector, even the police. The police don't even make as many referrals into prevent in terms of people that might be of interest to them or anything else that's cropped up. So. It's remarkable to suggest that something that's shown no evidence of working, has shown evidence of not working, has mm. shown evidence of extreme damage, has never been reviewed properly. And the only review we had was at the beginning of this year, which was published by William Shawcross. It didn't address any of the concerns and criticisms about Prevent. Why? If you're so confident you have a strategy that works, surely you would have taken the opportunity to do your review and to show just how amazing it was. If you've read the Shawcross report, it's I can't even describe it. It has no academic rigor whatsoever. It's so poorly written. He literally says, you know, uh, some people say that prevent is Islamophobic. I disagree. Since when is a report <laughs> written in that way? Like you, even a student, if your student came to you with a report written like that, you'd give them, you know, less than a D minus. I think John, uh, Professor John Homewood co-authored the report with me, said, oh, we give him a, a C minus or a D minus. I think he deserved a little less for that. So uh, on your website, which I'll, I'll link to, uh, which is uh, full of fascinating information, you uh, you mention uh, other people who have criticised Prevent. These are non-Muslims non mainly. I mean, who are these people? What, what are the institutions and organisations that have been very, very critical of Prevent over the years? So Amnesty International just recently, at the beginning of November, published a report uh, showing how Prevent silences free speech. Um, Ronnie Mead, 
uh, other mainstream organizations who are like uh, Ch Children's Rights International Network. They published a report on prevent and how it uh, undermines safeguarding of children. Um, Victoria Klimbe Foundation, who else? Um, MEND, CAGE, a number of a number of non-Muslim non organizations. Obviously, you have Muslim organizations in there as well. There are a number of non-Muslim organizations who were never never highlighted as being problematic. It was only the Muslim organizations and the Muslim individuals. I mean, you, we even had a forward in our report by the UN Special Rapporteur on countering terrorism whilst protecting freedoms. Um, and if you read her forward, it's quite damning with regards to how she feels the report has, has, um, you know, has shown prevent and all its harms, especially towards children. Now, none of that was taken on board. In fact, um, Policy Exchange decided to write a report shortly afterwards where they pretty much plagiarized our report and just kept giving quotes. And they highlighted all the Muslim organizations and individuals who had supported not only our report, but who had boycotted the Shore Cross Review uh, and made out as if there's this list of Islamist groups who are trying to undermine counterterrorism. And in their attempt to undermine counterterrorism, David Cameron, former prime minister, uh, now foreign secretary, wrote a forward for this report and said, you know, anyone undermining Prevent ultimately is enabling terrorism. Mm -hmm. So myself, uh, everyone else would be enablers of terrorism, according to him. Indeed. And um, I, I, was, I, was, I was very struck when the, the, the Home Secretary, or the one that was just uh, just resigned or fired, uh, spoke about the, uh, the, pal the pro-Palestinian marches. And I happened to be on the, the big one on that Saturday several weeks ago. And I remember attending it. It was huge. I mean, I've never seen anything like it. And what struck me about this uh, pro-Palestinian march is that it was almost like a family occasion. There were mothers and fathers with their children. There were a lot of young people. Everyone was extremely well behaved. They, they, they were obviously upset uh, uh, at what was going on, uh, the, the, the killings in Gaza. But um, there was no a sense of tension or negative anger in the sense of, you know, everyone's going to lash out. And nothing like that at all. It was all very calm in that sense although people were clearly very passionate about what's going on now i mention all this because when the home secretary uh then says that these uh publicly denouncing them and slurring us by saying these are hate marches mm -hmm. and how we were full of hatred and full of and they were anti-semitic and I, I mean i couldn't believe what i was seeing because it, it was it was not only false uh, and inaccurate it was slander and a slur on the integrity of what, I don't know how many hundreds of thousands of people who, who went along. And I thought if that is the caliber of response from the government, um, you know, how can they be trusted to, uh, you know, have a so-called a prevent program that deals fairly and objectively with people when they are, when pro-Palestinian people, Muslims and others are so unfairly maligned and mischaracterized as radical, dangerous people the whole thing would just just seem extremely uh wrong-footed actually and and um so i just wanted to make, make that comment how things have turned seemingly quite ugly or even uglier recently uh as a result of government pronouncements so swella braverman she was the one who made this con comment right. i mean she herself would have been referred to prevent if if we were using the term extremist fairly and especially under the new definition that's been proposed by michael gove um, of what extremism should be. I mean, ultimately, off the back of her comments and off the back of her hype about what was happening and how, you know, these were hateful marches um, and then how, you know, people were going to interrupt Armistice Day and, you know, this yeah. is idiots and they should be arrested before their feet hit the ground. There actually was then a hate demonstration. By who? By the right. very people that yeah. she had whipped up into a frenzy by the far right. Yeah. There was no indication of her then reporting this or describing this as a hate, a hate crime or hate march or hateful extremism or anything like that. Yeah. She didn't make any mention of it, from what I can tell, unless I missed something. No, I see. I certainly didn't pick that up. Um, I, and, and and this is the tenor now of, of the government's response uh, with, with, of course, the media and other agencies. That is to uh, go full on and push back against any kind of uh, Palestinian pro-Palestinian support or solidarity or, or public uh, upset about that, which was quite normal when it came to the Ukrainians and, and the Russians, of course. Everyone was encouraged to be very outraged. Um, 
but in this instance, uh, absolutely not. And it's it's very it's been a wake up call for many many people. I think to to uh, that um, the, the the normal rules of engagement about balance and fair play and and uh, don't apply anymore. I mean, you may say they never did, but for many people, it's become a a, um, a wake up call, really. Yeah, I think they've massively underestimated where the general public. Um, are sitting right now where they are in this journey um, and the fact that you know people have realized exactly what's happening because it's so overt it's just mm. it, they're not even trying to justify it anymore um, if you look at what there was a, a recent article um, by a student at York University mm. who had been referred to prevent and the officers when they turned up said I feel pretty silly being here actually <laughs> which is amazing because even the officers who are coming to question her have no idea what they're doing. They mm. have no idea. They've never done a prevent referral before. And they're asking her about her views and asking her about her social media where she says, you know, from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. And then she asks them, can you, is it a crime? And they say, well, from what the Home Office is saying, that essentially, if you say that statement and Jewish people overhear you, it could be considered a hate crime. Well, okay, fine. If it's considered a hate crime, then why do you need prevent? Because hate crime is a separate category. That is actually a crime. Just be clear here. What, what, why you're saying this? If you're committing a hate crime, i.e., a crime, you don't need a special prevent, which is about is it the pre? You call it a pre-crime yeah. phase. Exactly. Uh, it's not to do with criminal law. It's nothing to do with you're not being arrested or taken to court. Arrested. Um, so, a crime. So what, what, why why are these police coming on the basis of event when it's actually a crime, if it is a crime? But it wasn't a crime. So that's this is right. where they get stuck in this uh, very strange space, which just shows the incoherence of prevent and the incoherence of what's happening right now. It's not a crime. So you're here under prevent, uh, but you can't tell me if what I've said is a crime. In fact, you're, you're reiterating that it's not a crime. So why are you here and why are you speaking to me? Well, what you're doing is you're firstly trying to silence me and intimidate me because having two police officers turn up at your home oh, yeah. is going to be pretty intimidating for anyone. Okay. And furthermore, you are undermining democracy. You're undermining the rule of law. And interestingly, these are two tenets of what is called fundamental British values. And fundamental British values ultimately define what is seen as extremist in the UK. So if you undermine fundamental British values, democracy, rule of law, tolerance, uh, and individual liberty, right? These all sound very familiar as things that are being undermined currently um, by government, particularly when it comes to Muslims, then you are ultimately an extremist. And these are the things that um, schools are told to incorporate as part of their curriculum. Like you have to uphold these values. You have to actively uphold them and actively incorporate them. And so that's why you'll hear uh, children speaking about these things. They, they'll have it up in their schools, you know, the values like tolerance, etc., which are fine. They're all perfectly fine values, except when you make them part of fundamental British values and when you link them to extremism you're bringing the education sector directly under the counter-terrorism strategy and you're otherizing people because by calling them British values yeah. you're essentially suggesting that some people need to be taught how to be British and who are those some people? But I think that maybe we've misunderstood this actually what, what you're saying but maybe that's based what you're saying is based on a misunderstanding you, you say the government's talking about tolerance the rule of law and democracy and and, and you're saying oh well the reality is different uh, and how is this democratic and so on? But maybe there's a mistake in in in, in what you're saying. Is that it is a, it, there, there is democracy and freedom of speech and so on within the context of absolute support for the state of Israel. That that, that is that is not not something you mentioned and not something the definition has mentioned, but it is part of the definition. How do we know this? Because that is how it works. It only ever works like that. It's not like it works like that last year or this year or now since October the same. It's always been like that. And so is it not better to say or more accurate to say that there are silent assumptions which are triggered, are, are there, and they're very active and real, which are the absolute legitimacy and right for Israel to defend itself no matter what it does. And as a corollary to that, any resistance by people living in an occupied land, Palestine, Gaza, West Bank, is by definition wrong, extreme, 
because it violates that first principle, the absolute right of Israel to exist. So do we not need to amend these principles to actually incorporate more explicitly these geopolitical realities, which are very much active in the way these principles are applied in the real world? Do you think that's fair or not? Well, I think partly only because by suggesting that Israel has a right to exist or a right to defend itself doesn't mean that you can't talk about the freedom of Palestine. You know, you can talk about freedom of Palestine without being anti-Semitic, without suggesting that Israel doesn't have a right to exist. Yeah. Um, but what we're really talking about is, yes, these principles apply. Yes, there are so-called silent assumptions, which are becoming ever louder. Well, that's um, my point. That, that yeah. they are, they are, and, and I'm saying that the armed resistance to occupation is, by definition, terrorism. In on this assumption, I mean, I only, personally, only, if, only if it's Palestinians, but yeah. not if it's Ukrainians. Exactly. No, 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 no. This is what I'm saying. I, 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 I personally, I don't think armed resistance to occupation is immoral or terrorist at all. Uh, if the Ukrainians do it, it's good. If the Palestinians, it's good. But but when it comes to Palestine, that is that is by this set of assumptions what it is terrorism so i'm saying that the problem maybe is is that we're articulating a set of principles in a way that is consistent with a more um just and more balanced perspective which incorporates all occupied people's right to resist but actually these principles are only ever articulated within this more limited western zionist framework which automatically says israel are the good guys and the palestinians are the bad guys when they're resisting occupation um, and, and so there's these silent principles, which are very much active, as you put it, which are causing the problem. So I guess we, g given that skewed reality or that configuration of reality, perhaps I should say, um, it's very difficult, isn't it, to push back because we're not on the level playing field. We're not talking about the same thing. You're talking about principles and freedoms. The, the opposition are saying the same, but they mean by it different things than you do. Yeah, and, and also this is why it goes back to who gets to define what is extremist. I mean, exactly. we don't even have a legally a legal definition of extremism or a non-legal um, and agreed upon definition of extremism to date. Mm -hmm. Like we still don't have one. And yet it's used and it's used in a way as if there is some kind of legal definition. Yeah. That, so that's a bit of a that's a bit of a, a paradox, isn't it? So you're saying there isn't a tight definition and yet we're all talking as if there is one. And everyone's talking about extremism instead of speaking about terrorism. We understand terrorism, act of terrorism. Again, there are laws around that. But there isn't really a law around extremism, and yet there is. So you can be criminalized in a way for being extremist, but you don't quite fit under the category of any legal definition. And I think that's very deliberate that there isn't a legal definition, because the minute they put in a legal definition, then you can challenge it. If you call me an extremist, and I take you to court and I'm not an extremist and I win that court case, then you're going to have to use the term extremism within its definition, within its legal definition. Mm. And I think the fact that they don't have a legal definition is very deliberate. It allows you to right. then move the goalposts regularly right. in terms of who is and who isn't an extremist, depending on the current climate. Mm. So you're saying this ambiguity is deliberate to allow maximum manoeuvre by the by the authorities to... Uh, uh, oppose views they don't like uh, and so on that's interesting okay uh, can i ask a more fundamental question it's not necessarily to do with your work directly i mean if i mean i i i mentioned osama bin laden's letter to america earlier on his purported motivation behind the attacks on america uh, and before talking to that i looked at what one of the so-called testimonies of the the men behind the 7th of july 2005 london bombings and it's very, very similar, if not the same, reasons given for these attacks. Given that the motivation seems to be one of almost uncontrolled anger at uh, atrocities, uh, attacks on Muslims around the world, perpetuated, they say, by the West. Um, and, and this has led to terrorism, actual terrorist offences in, in, in these cases. How do we deal with that reality? Do you see what I mean? <laughs> Instead of referring six-year-old kids who may have said something at school to prevent, how do we deal with real, actual, most stated motivation, stated testimony from actual people who committed these acts and have put it on camera, on video, or in books? How do we deal with that? 
So it's interesting because what, one of the things that came out of the ERG 22 plus report hmm. was that they omitted political motivations, right? So really? they deliberately did not include uh, political grievances and political motivations as part of um, as part of the risk assessment. Now, if you have if you are very political, you are very active. Yes, it is seen as a risk factor, but they omitted a certain degree of the political and foreign interests of, of people. Um, which is interesting because why would you, if you're if you're trying to develop a genuine risk assessment for people who are then going to go on to cause acts of terrorism, then as you said, surely you would go back from actual terror offences. What were their motivations? What was happening? Yeah. And try to put together some kind of research on that. Now, if people yeah. produced an evidence-based risk assessment and said, "Well, we've done this. We've taken terrorists and we've gone backwards." and this is what we produced, and here's all the evidence, then it would be up to anybody else to put that up to scrutiny and say, right, well, actually, yeah, this looks pretty solid, or no, we still disagree because there are flaws in your methodology, etc. But that hasn't been done. Instead, we've yeah. been given this other version. And remember, I said the cohort of people who are at the basis now of PREVENT weren't even convicted for terror offences that were violent. These are non-violent offences that they were convicted for. Now, they have the resources to do this, so why wouldn't they invest in that rather than continuing to push uh, Prevent as a programme? I mean, why not go backwards? Why not say, well, you know, we want to predict these crimes because, okay, they might not be the predominant crime. Knife crime is higher than terrorism is, but we want to focus on this because, as far as we're concerned, the impact of terrorism is bigger than knife crime, even though the raw numbers are higher. Whatever the motivation is, yeah. You would expect that they would pump money into that research. And yet instead, we see the re-justification and refueling of Prevent and other such concepts. Why? I mean, it's a good question. I don't have an answer. Well, I, I, what I found interesting reading uh, uh, an interview, I think it was with a Spanish reporter um, uh, that he did with Osama bin Laden. And this Spanish reporter uh, was very switched on and he, he understood Islam, I think, really well. And the geopolitical realities he, he said well i understand i'm paraphrasing here you know he understood as bin laden's uh anger and resentment at western actions in in, in uh against muslims in iraq for example uh, occupied uh, territories afghanistan etc but he didn't understand why some thought he could target civilians non-combatants and some bin laden you know who's sometimes portrayed as a fundamentalist or a literalist it's completely wrong because what he said was, uh, and this, this is this is what he said. Samir Laden says these rulings, they're very clear rulings in Islam in the Sharia against targeting civilians or non-combatants, to use the technical term. So if you're a woman, you're you're uh, a monk, a priest, uh, an elderly person, a child, a woman, you cannot be targeted in war because you're not fighting anyone. Yeah, even though you may agree with the people, but you're not fighting them. It's actually prohibited in Sahih Hadiths. Is they are prohibited in the Quran as well? So how did how did something like he who said these rulings in the Sharia are not set in stone? That was his. That was actually his phrase. They're not set in stone. So he was actually quite modernist and liberal in his interpretation of the Sharia. Hey, he may have said that then, but we're not going to follow that. This is the teachings of Islam. <laughs> so. Um, this 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 kind of logic struck uh, really struck me uh, as quite bizarre because if you're a serious Muslim, you must follow the Quran and the Sunnah, and he chose not to when it comes to targeting civilians. Um, and uh, again, that this kind of nuance or this perspective, I don't often hear talked about in in prevent kind of dialogues. I mean, in if you look at some of the cases where you know people have gone on to commit acts of terror. And then they start to pick apart their lifestyle. You know, many of these people aren't, you know, they may use it as a justification, but they're not actually practicing Islam as a conservative, as a conservative Muslim. Exactly. And yet somehow when it comes to prevent referrals, you have people who are conservative Muslims or would describe themselves as conservative. Um, mm. You know, people who want to pray during school time. Oh, that's a red flag. People who have come back, have been referred to, uh, to prevent, come back wearing a, a hijab. So sisters who have come back and they've started to wear the headscarf, uh, whether they've come back from holiday or maybe from Umrah or something, have, have yeah. actually been referred. In fact, counter-terrorism police referred their own colleagues to prevent. Uh, once uh, one, one, of the, one of the colleagues had just come back from pilgrimage 
and he started handing out some gifts to his colleagues and he'd grown a beard. These were listed as reasons why the counterterrorism officers referred their colleagues. So you can't say, oh, it's a mistake on the part of the teacher or the doctor who makes a referral, it's a lack of training. These are supposed to be the people who are trained, the counterterrorism officers, <laughs> who are making these referrals. And so it just shows how flawed it is and that a lot of normative Islamic practices are the basis for people being referred. And yet there isn't really anything other than this ideological view that somehow Muslims have this inherent, I don't know if you saw, was it Douglas Murray's latest um, interview talking about how Muslims are inherently anti-Semitic and they're not actually yeah, out there protesting yeah. Palestine, actually. They they are only out there protesting because they really hate Jews. And it's and, and all the quotes that he used, if you have no idea about Islam, you think, oh, he's quoting, he's given evidence. When you look at the quotes he used and the references he makes, there's so many inaccuracies but who in layman terms would go up and actually look it up? You just hear him citing and you think, well, he's backed it up, he's backed it up. When you look at what he's citing, you know, hold on, he's wrong. Well, because because normally Douglas Murray, I mean, I've read several of his books, but when he's talking about other issues, whether it be LGBT or, or whatever, he's actually quite nuanced and quite well-researched. It's actually a pleasure to read. And I think a lot of Muslims have found benefit from reading him. But when it comes to Islam, um, I think he turns into, politely, like a, a tabloid hack. He, he no longer... Uh, you know, it shows the same rigorous methodology and care for the details. He becomes something very dark and, and very ominous. Uh, and, and as you say, uh, he, he said that Muslims in their, uh, you know, the anti-Zionist position are not really against Zionism. They just don't like Jews. I mean, he, he really said that. And, and this is a complete failure to understand reality. I mean, there's no excuse for that. You know, he's, he's an intelligent man. Um and I, I found that extremely um, upsetting that he should come out with these slanders and lies as well. Uh, and the irony is, in my view, and I, I'm sure you would agree, that one of the best safeguards against extremism, violent extremism or any kind of extremism, is to be a really good practicing Muslim, actually. that The more one practices Islam, obviously based on the Quran and the Sunnah, uh, then the normative Islam will stop any murderous impulse by definition, because Islam has very strict rules of war, rules of conduct, who you can and cannot fight against, who can declare war, initiate hostilities, when to stop them, who not to target, who to target. Very, very sophisticated body of, and well-known body of, of, of rules and regulations. And, you know, if you want to defeat terrorism, then be a good Muslim. Well, if you look at the, I think there are two types of, of people who make this um, make this mistake. Firstly, there's the types like Douglas Murray, as you said, there's no excuse for making these so-called mistakes. They're not mistakes. They're deliberate, they're deliberate attempts to smear. And yes. it's no surprise that these people belong to think tanks that are very influential when it comes to government decisions. And then you have the layman who is making a prevent referral. So, for example, we had a, a teacher who uh, wanted to make a prevent referral of an autistic child child was only eight years old. Um, it was a few days after October 7th, actually. Um, the school played a, a clip, um, a, a news clip, uh, to an eight-year-old autistic child, and the child reacted inappropriately. They didn't take any reasonable consideration for this child's disability. They didn't take any reasonable consideration for the fact that things were still raw. They didn't ask if he had been affected or his family or anything like that. The school admitted that they eventually they did make the prevent referral and they admitted it was completely disproportionate. However, the person who made the prevent referral then spoke to the parent before, just before making the prevent referral, actually, the, the, the teacher spoke to the parent and said, you know, we're a bit concerned he reacted like this. And the parent said, oh, I tell him not to speak about these things outside the home. Oh. Now, the teacher saw that as a justification to make this referral because, you know, what are you speaking about at home then? You know, this is, um, this for him is like justification of why he should be making this referral when actually it's the lived reality of Muslims that you do not, you know, you do not speak about certain things. You censor your child, you censor yourself in certain environments. It's very disempowering, but many Muslims are doing it. And it actually backfires in a major way because firstly, your children go into school thinking, okay, I have to leave my identity at the gates. Mm. Secondly, you know, even in your justification of saying, well, we're not, I tell him not to speak about these things, it backfired and it was used as a justification against you. But these second type of people, like the teachers, etc., they are making these mistakes because they genuinely believe that this is a reason, you know, they completely misunderstand what she means and what the lived reality of Muslims is. What mm. does conservative Islam look like? 
You know, they don't understand what conservative Islam looks like. They don't understand the challenges that comes with being a Muslim in the UK. Okay, we might be in a much better position than Muslims in France, but there are still a unique set of challenges in the UK that we do challenge on a day-to-day basis. I think I think the West is, is, is still to learn a huge amount about Islam and all the information's there. There's no excuse, particularly now we've got the internet. Obviously, like Salafi, Salafis are seen as you know the the, the the sect within Islam that is the most potentially violent and dangerous and all that. I mean, you get this rhetoric, especially in France and Germany as well. But actually, the Salafis, uh, if you actually meet Salafis who are just Muslims, of course, are often the most uh, um, non-political. Uh, or on uh, those who are against any uh, physical actions, they're pa- almost pacifist, actually. Uh, most of them in their attitude, and this is not like re- a recent development. They've been like this for, for a very long time, and they are often the most outspoken against terrorism. So, uh, and these are Salaf- self-identified Salafis. Um, so, again, that this basic fact, which uh, all, all, you know, all knowledgeable Muslims know this, uh, say in the UK. It, it seems to have completely bypassed the uh, you know the political classes in in much of Europe who target these this particular group as particularly dangerous. The irony is most of them are pacifists. Yeah, I think this this probably uh, forms a bit of the basis of why so many Muslim organisations and individuals try to share you know like the history of Islam and like this is what we invented and this is what you know come and meet a Muslim come and hug a Muslim and I say it in that tone because like I find it really insulting to some degree yes there is a part of raising awareness and like educating people because otherwise they are getting you know a lot a lot of things coming through what they would think are mainstream and reliable media sources etc that is incorrect um, and and does smear and put Muslims in a bad light but on some level as well it's like Am I really going to sit here as a Muslim and justify that I'm human, that I I eat, I drink, I have tea, come and have like a real cuppa with me? Like it's so, it's degrading, it's really degrading. And so I, you know, as much as people do it and I understand where that intention comes from and maybe some of that intention comes from what you mentioned as well. Like I just, I find it just so exhausting. And part of it is... um yeah, it's really inhumane to have to justify yourself. And again, I'm just kind of linking it back to Palestine and how, you know, they've, you know, some people would say why, I know this happened when the earthquake happened in Morocco, for example, people saying, oh, you know, protect your children, don't put your children, don't put the children's pictures up um, because you don't know what could happen and there might be trafficking happening for children, et cetera, et cetera. Hmm. The same arguments aren't being had here when it comes to Palestine, right? They're not saying, why are they showing these dead children? Why are they showing these children who have no homes, who are, you know, sitting in hospitals and all of their family have died? And, you know, nobody said that. Why? Because they're not thinking about the protection of these children. They're thinking, actually, yeah, we need to see these children. We need to understand what's happening. We need to justify their humanity. When we saw the the young girl, Alma, I don't know if you saw this video, where they're calling this young girl under the rubble um, and they're trying to save her and she says, you know, save my save my family first, save my parents or her grandparents, I think it was, or her parents and my siblings first, and then save me last. You know, and people are sharing this, and I understand why they're sharing it, but they're sharing it and it's like, oh, look, she's so brave. And yes, she is so brave, but like, are, are our children not brave? Like, do we have to really justify it in this way and show them as exceptional? Like, you have to be exceptional because if you're not exceptional... Although, although I get, I understand what you're saying, but in, in, in my view now, I've become a slightly more cynical uh, about all this, that often Palest- well, Palestinians are normally, I think, portrayed as, as less human, uh, dare I put it, than um, the Israelis are or white Westerners are. I, I don't mean to be cynical in that. I, I, I think those are the facts. Do, do bear that out. They have actually. to know it. Uh, to humanize yeah. Which is yeah. so the, the effort here is to humanize human beings. If that makes any sense, um, and so the the motivation to do that is understandable because uh, I, I think Palestinians are seen as less than human, um, or as animals. Actually, to quote one government minister in the state of Israel, um, and in that context, you know, I mean, extraordinary. We should be even having this conversation uh, that such efforts to humanize us. Uh, humanized Muslims are understandable I guess and that is exactly and I understand that sentiment I understand where it comes from the motivation I'm not saying that they shouldn't 
um, you know, I'm saying they shouldn't have to, but I understand yeah. why they're doing it because we we do the same essentially. Why do we tell stories of people who have been referred to prevent? Because we're humanizing them, and not only are we humanizing them, but we're showing that this is anyone's eight-year-old child. It's not the child of a terrorist, and it's not a future terrorist. It's an eight-year-old. It's a four-year-old. This is their story, and so I get that we have to. I'm saying that the fact that we have to is bad in and of itself, but that's the state. That's the position that we're in. Yes. Yeah, it's uh, extremely, extremely depends. It's getting worse, not not better. Um, I, I think perhaps if we draw to a, a, conclu- a close, uh, and uh, I want to ask you, do you get any official funding? So clearly you're doing very important work. There's no disputing that, I think. Uh, and congratulations on, on your excellent work. I think it's such a, an outstanding public service. So I'm bound to ask, do you get any official funding? Because surely you would for such important vital work for the community so he's not doing it out of any personal uh benefit clearly so surely you must be getting funding we don't get any uh official funding in that sense and in fact i think if government had their way then um they would also stop people from funding us as well and try to put wow. some measures there i know that the the policy exchange report for example say you know you really need to crack down on charities who are then associated or potentially giving money to other organizations that are undermining prevent so absolutely not and um we would never really want any money from official sources in that sense because then you would have strings attached right you would be exactly you would be limited in what you could and couldn't say and what you could and could portray about prevent so we don't um we rely 100 percent on community funding we did recently get a grant from tudor trust which is not um you know it's not a home office backed or anything it's a grant making uh, a charity that gave us a small grant this year um, but otherwise, up since we set up in 2015, up until this year when we received that small grant, no, we've been completely community funded. Um, we have very small overheads because we're a very small organisation and we rely a lot on volunteers and other people who, who chip in. Right. So you're dependent on donations. Uh, so uh, I think you're a worthwhile cause, a worthy organisation. So I'm going to put the, the link uh, to your uh, to donate in the description below, to so donate to Prevent Watch. Uh, visit the website, click on the link, uh, preventwatch.org donation. I'll put the link below. And do do um, keep uh, help keep this extraordinary organisation going, which is more needed now, I would think, than ever before uh, with, with possibly even choppier waters ahead. So um, I, I do, do encourage all of us to to give uh, to, you, to you and to your organisation. Um, do you have any sort of concluding words you want to share with, with, with us all about your, your work? Um, I think just to say that, you know, in January, which is not very far off, a few weeks away, we will have the new recommendations of Shawcross put in place, the new prevent duty guidance. And that duty guidance will refocus on Muslims, which is what prevent was always intended to do. And I think that um, the referrals will become, you know, it, it will be a real justified discrimination in terms of how referrals are being carried out uh, with regards to Muslims and how they're treated. I would say, you know, if anybody is referred to prevent or even if there are conversations around extremism or radicalization and these kinds of implications, you know, do contact us and let us know, because it's important that we understand what the terrain looks like um, so that we can help support in a, you know, in a more informed way other people. Um, But yeah, also just to realize that as much as we talk about these issues um, and how horrible they are and how damaging they are, you know, a lot of people, especially all the people who contact us, do push back. And there are various ways of pushing back. Not everything can be pushed back legally, but whether you're sharing your story um, and exposing the harms of Prevent, whether you're pushing back legally, whether you're getting an apology just through a complaint from school or work, um, there are many ways to push back. And we do have rights. And like I said, you know, Prevent doesn't sit, and this idea of extremism doesn't sit within a legal definition. And so the way it's used usually means that they're breaching something else. Um, so there are opportunities to push back. And, you know, a lot of our role is an empowering role. So it, it's really difficult because when you're telling the stories and you're humanizing on the other side as well, you're also maybe uh, disempowering the community. So I hope that, um, you know, if you go on the website and if you touch base with us, then we can tell you more about, you know, how you can push back, Sharma. Yeah, I do recommend people uh, visit the website as well, uh, which the, the link is to the website. Uh, very, very readable, very interesting, uh, very up to date. It's a very good website. I do recommend that. So, well, it's been an absolute delight to talk to you, uh, Dr. Layla, uh, from the Prevent Watch, and you're doing sterling work. Uh, inshallah, you will continue uh, to do that well. And uh, thank you very much indeed for your time. Thank you.
Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.